Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Um, my dream one day would be to have a scratch and sniff Bible. Do you remember the old scratch and sniff stickers? I would scratch verses 1 through 11 in the smell of freedom. Scandalous grace and freedom would come forth from this passage. So I hope today as we look at it that you begin to experience God's freedom by his spirit through his word today. So let's pray before we begin. Father, what a wonderful passage we look at today and it's highlighting the work of your son for us. And it's downplaying everything that we tried to do for you to please you. So God, I pray today that freedom would come, that people would be set free from the slavery of trying to get your favor and that they would realize it can only come through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. I do pray, God, that for those people here who have never experienced the freedom of knowing your son, they've never repented and confessed their sins and trusted in Christ's work, that today by your spirit you would do that, Father. But for those of us who are Christians, God, so many of us need to be set free. And I pray that you would do that today and that this date would be remembered by so many people as being exposed to your word as the time that you set them free, God, from the slavery and the performance treadmill that they're on trying to earn your favor and they would realize how much you love them. So come and do that for your glory and for your people and for your church today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know me, you know that I love The Twilight Zone. It's one of my favorite uh, TV shows. Uh, TV was good then, I think, really, in a lot of ways. One of my favorite episodes, and there are many, um, is, is titled The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And it begins in a typical 1950s neighborhood, kind of leave it to beaver. You know, people are out washing their cars, trimming their bushes, saying hi to each other, and everything is swell. You know, everything's perfect. And all of a sudden, this shadow, you know, comes racing across the neighborhood with this loud noise, and everybody kind of looks up and scratches their head, and they're wondering what it is, and they begin discussing uh, with each other, and, and they chalk it up to maybe a meteor shower. They're not sure. And then one by one, people start coming out of their homes and they're saying, is your power out? You know, our power's not working. You know, Frank, the stove's not working. What's going on? People's cars don't work. And a man heads off into town to see if he can figure out what's happening. And uh, pretty soon, um, this little boy, this teenage boy, chirps up amidst the discussion. And he says, I think I know what's happening. I think the aliens are here. I read about it in a book, and, and what they do is, is they come and they infiltrate us, and, and I think the aliens have come, and everybody dismisses him, and then soon, soon enough, panic sets in, and fear, and people start believing the boy's story. And they said, tell us about this story that you read. He said, well, what they do is they come ahead of time, and they look like us, and they live with us, and amongst us, and sooner or later, they change, and that's how they take over and win. So panic and paranoia sets in. Everyone is accusing one another. You know, maybe you're the, the, the monster. Maybe you're the alien. We've seen you looking out at the stars at night, and we've seen you up in the middle of the night doing strange things, and, and you've got this weird ham radio in your basement. And These are people that knew each other and loved each other and lived with each other, and they start accusing one another of being the alien. 
And then by the time night comes, they're all accusing one another. And the man that went into town comes back in and they see him walking down the street and it's dark and he gets shot because they think he's an alien. And then the camera cuts to a nearby hilltop where it is revealed that the meteor that they thought went over was in fact an alien spaceship. And there's two aliens up there with monitoring with this little device, manipulating the power in the neighborhood, making lights come on and off. And they comment on how easy it was to create paranoia and panic. And they conclude that the easiest way to conquer earth is to let the people of the earth destroy themselves. See, it's a picture and it's a lesson on humanity that we will do anything to save ourselves. These people were accusing people that they knew, that they loved, as being this foreign alien because they wanted to save themselves. They wanted to save their own face. So they started accusing everyone else. And it didn't matter if other people died as long as they were safe. The reality as human beings is that we cannot save ourselves. We try desperately by our good works to get God's favor, to be made right with God, instead of resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we try desperately to save face with other people instead of resting in the fact that we have God's favor. We try to please man. The gospel frees us from both of those. Today, I'm going to preach another gospel-centered sermon. You may be thinking, really? Do we need another gospel-centered sermon? Let me answer that for you, and I think you know the answer. The answer is yes. We need another gospel-centered sermon for two reasons. One, it's in the text. It's in verse 1. That's what Paul says. It's safe for me to write these things to you and tell you about them again. Secondly, I believe we need to hear another one because I believe that Martin Luther is correct when he said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget the gospel every day. And that's why I've been beating the drum of the gospel since I came here in October is because of our tendency to forget the gospel on a daily basis. We tend to forget what Jesus has done for us in his life and death and resurrection We tend to forget that we are forgiven of our sins, that we are blameless in God's eyes, that we are justified, that we've been adopted into his family. And when we forget that, all the glorious truths of the gospel, what happens is that we will get on the performance treadmill where we think that the things that we do in our Christian life give us access to God. If I read my Bible enough, then I can come into God's presence. If I pray enough, then I can come into God's presence. Or we think the things that we don't do hinder us from coming into God's presence. I didn't read my Bible for two days, so how can I come into your presence? Or we think the things that we do, particularly sin, keep us from coming into God's presence. And when we sin, the one place we need to be is in God's presence, accepting his forgiveness and his love. So that's what it means to be on the performance treadmill. We begin focusing on our works for God, what we do for him, or what we don't do, instead of work, focusing on Jesus' work for us. In a nutshell, we try to save ourselves. It's what we've been doing since, doing since the Garden of Eden. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they do? They hid from God. They made clothes out of fig leaves, tried to cover themselves up, and then God had to show up 
and cover them with animal skins. It was a picture of our desperate need of this outside, alien, foreign to us righteousness that God has to do and give to us and cover us. The reality is that we cannot fix our relationship with God. God must be the one who fixes it. Our big idea today is this. The gospel frees you from the slavery of trying to gain and maintain favor with God, and it frees you to enjoy him. Here's what I mean. The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died to bring you to God, frees you from trying to earn and maintain his favor. You cannot earn God's favor by your good works, and you cannot maintain God's favor by your good works. Just because you read the Bible and pray doesn't mean that God is impressed with you. God is impressed with you because of what his son has done. And he gives that work to you and covers you with that. We cannot gain or maintain God's favor by our own works. The gospel comes and it releases us from that slavery to true freedom where we can actually begin enjoying God because of all that he is for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Christian, and I'm talking to Christians today, you can rest because Jesus has done it all for you. You can rest. Yes, you need to fight sin. I'm not saying don't ever read the Bible, don't ever fight sin, don't ever hate sin. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you can rest from trying to please God because he said at his son's baptism, what did he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God is well pleased in his son. And he gives you the righteousness of his son and so you can rest in that. And that is freedom. This is what Paul's trying to tell the Philippian church. But before we begin getting into the text, I want you to think today, am I a Christian? Because this isn't for all of you. It is for all of you. It's a free gift. It is good news. But some of you have not appropriated these truths. Some of you have not repented, confessed your sins. Some of you are not trusting in Jesus Christ and saying, you're my greatest treasure in this life. So I'm talking to Christians today when I say that the gospel frees you from the slavery of trying to gain and maintain favor with God and frees you to enjoy him. That is true for you Christians. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, this can be true for you. You really can't earn and maintain God's favor. You need the gospel. So I want you to think about that as the sermon is progressing, as we look at God's word. Am I a Christian? Is this true of me? Look at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul's saying, I don't mind rehearsing the gospel with you, Philippians, because it's beneficial. It's safe. It will protect you. The gospel message that Jesus died to bring you to God and you're covered with his righteousness and forgiven and that you stand blameless in his eyes. Paul says, when I keep telling you about that, it's safe for you. It protects you and it produces joy in you. That's why he says, rejoice in the Lord. When they rehearse the gospel and they remember all that Jesus is for them, it produces joy in them. And this joy that Paul wants them to experience goes against what the false teachers were telling 
the Philippians. Who were these false teachers? What was the message that they are preaching? Look at verse 2. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh. Paul is countering the claim of these false teachers. They were called Judaizers. They were Jewish people who traveled around. And once churches began to, uh, cropping up, they began infiltrating churches and say, look, you know, Paul and all these other apostles have it wrong. Okay. You need to be circumcised according to the Old Testament scriptures in order to be made right with God. You're, you're not quite there yet. And they said, you need to maintain all the strict dietary laws in the Old Testament. And all the ceremonial laws, everything in the Old Testament you must do is what they were saying. They were saying, you have to do these things to be made right with God. So Paul calls them dogs and evildoers. Because their evil message was, you can get right with God through circumcision, through works. Now, circumcision was given to God's people in the Old Testament as an outward sign of the covenant that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, had made with his people. It was a source of pride for the Jewish people. And these Judaizers came into the Philippian church and said, if you want to be made right with God, every male in this church needs to be circumcised. But we know, and Paul is telling the Philippians, that this goes against the heart of the gospel, which stressed what? The circumcision of the heart, the cutting of the heart. Yes, circumcision was given as an outward sign that you were welcomed into the covenant community in Israel. But it was supposed to be a sign of an inward change. Now, we know that in Israel, there were circumcised people whose hearts weren't circumcised. There were people in Israel who were circumcised on the eighth day, but their hearts weren't circumcised. That's what Paul is stressing here. He wants their hearts to be pierced and to be cut And that's why Paul says, it's no big deal for me to write the same things to you, Philippians. We must keep reviewing the gospel lest we get off track. And the gospel is this, that we are not made right with God through our works, circumcision, keeping the Old Testament law, anything like that. We are made right with God through this inward circumcision that the Spirit of God does in our hearts. That's the gospel. When you repent and trust in Jesus Christ, it's called regeneration. God makes you new. You are born again. The Spirit circumcises your heart. He changes your heart. He changes your affections so that now you glory in Jesus Christ and you rejoice in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 3. Look there. For we are the circumcision, not outwardly, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The true circumcision, true believers, are those whose hearts have been circumcised, who are trusting in Jesus' works for them and not their own works. Paul says, we don't put any confidence in the flesh, what we do in circumcision and all of our outward acts of obedience. Paul says, we don't put any confidence in that. But Paul goes on to say, if anybody here, anybody in Philippi, wants to put confidence in the flesh, he says, anybody has reason? Paul says, I have reason. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day? of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anyone had reason to boast in their goodness, Paul said it was 
I do. I played by all the rules, all the spiritual rules of the day. I played by them, Paul said. And he listened to his impressive spiritual resume here. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. Like every good Jewish boy, on the eighth day he was done. He was clipped on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He's a full-blooded Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. He comes from one of the two tribes that did not rebel against the Davidic dynasty. He comes from the tribe that Israel's first king Saul came from. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Even though Paul was born in Tarsus and was thoroughly acquainted with the Greco-Roman culture of his day, he was steeped in the language and the culture and the religious heritage of the Jewish people. And he even studied under the great and esteemed Rabbi Gamaliel. He studied under the best of the best. And he says, as to the law of Pharisee, Paul was a member of one of the strictest, most disciplined and widely respected religious leaders of his day. Scholars estimate that at this time, there were almost 6,000 Pharisees in Paul's day. They were strict adherents to the law. In fact, there's a rabbinic commentary called the Mishnah. And under the Mishnah, in Tractate of the Fathers, it says that the rabbis, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that they built a fence around the law. And this is what they meant. They so wanted to honor God's law. And they looked back over the history of Israel, how Israel had turned away from the Lord and broken his commandments. They, they feared his discipline would come upon them. They wanted to protect God's law so much that they built what they called a fence around it. And what, it, what they meant by that was that when the scriptures say, the Ten Commandments, you know, keep the Sabbath holy. They said, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? We can't work on the Sabbath. So in order to keep people from breaking the commandment that said, keep the Sabbath holy, they came up with extra rules and said, you can only walk so far on the Sabbath, maybe a mile or so, and then it's considered work. So if you know you need to go to the grocery store, you better time it to where you have enough space to get there, get what you need, and come back. But if you make a little detour, you may get three-quarters of the way home and realize I've walked a mile, and if I take another step, it's work. So they came up with all these extra laws to keep people from breaking God's commandments. And Paul will say that he was blameless even with those man-made laws. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church... He was so zealous for God that when uh, the first disciples began preaching the gospel, he thought he was doing something for God by persecuting them. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Paul does not mean that he wasn't a sinner. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew the book of Leviticus through atonement. A sinner could be reconciled with a holy God. He knew the Old Testament sacrifices. But what Paul is saying is that he was separate from the rest of the world. He and his friends, the Pharisees, were, were set apart. And these people really obeyed God's laws, is what he's saying. They followed the Mosaic law to a detail. They, in fact, kept all the extra laws that they made. Paul says, I was blameless. But Paul came to realize, when he heard the gospel message, that even though he was good and righteous in the world's eyes, in the spiritual Leader's eyes of his day, he knew that spiritually he was bankrupt when he heard the gospel. Paul came to believe that the gospel frees you from the slavery of trying to gain and maintain favor with God, and it frees you to enjoy him. Paul could not gain favor with God or maintain it by his own life. Only the gospel freed him to do that. Now look at verses 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All right, I want you to see what Paul's doing in in these verses here. He's comparing the gospel message and the, and the righteousness that God gives to believers when they repent and believe in Jesus Christ, he's comparing that with his old ways of trying to keep the law, trying to maintain right standing with, with God. So he's going to kind of go back and forth there. Four times he's going to say, this is the gospel, this is the old way. This gospel message gets you righteousness with God. This old man-made way does not. He's got gospel on one side and law on the other. So he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The gain, the perfect life that he had in Pharisaic rabbinic Judaism, this perfect life of obeying all the rules and looking good on the outside, squeaky clean and perfect on the outside, Paul says he counts it as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. See, the law was given, and it was good. God gave his law, but he gave it to who? A redeemed people. When did the law come? After redemption out of Egypt when they were at Mount Sinai. God's law came to a redeemed people. God's law reveals who God is. It reveals the sinfulness of man, and it was given to Israel to govern how they were to live in the land. Now, what happened is that in Paul's day, the Pharisees began to think, we can do this stuff. And so they started looking at all 613 commandments in the law and started checking them off one by one. I've done this. The passage, I think three times in the Old Testament, it says, uh, and it's your life verse. For some of you, I know it says, do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That verse, Paul looked at that and said, I've never done that. Check. In fact, he said, I've never been tempted to do that. So check. The one that says you shall not wear clothing made of two different kinds of fabrics. Paul looked at his tag and was like, oh, 100% cotton. Check. Check that off the list. You go on down. It says you shall not eat pigs. Paul was like, I don't like bacon. I've never had it. Check. He was wrong there to not like bacon, right? Can I get an amen? He went through this whole list. Check, check, check. We've done these things. And he says, I count all of that, that pride in, in what I did as loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. His own righteousness doesn't compare with knowing Jesus and his imputed righteousness as given to sinners when they trust in him. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says that all these things are lost. Count it as loss because I've gained Christ and I've been found in him. And then he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's righteousness in the the past came from his good works and what he did for God. But it did not get him right with God. He says, now... The righteousness that matters is the righteousness that comes to anyone who repents and believes in Christ. They don't do anything. It's, it's given to them. Paul says that's what matters. So he describes his past 
Three times he says loss. I count it as loss. I've got the gospel now. I've got Jesus Christ. This is loss. This is loss. This is loss. And then he says it's rubbish. Rubbish was the scubula. It was this, this Greek word. It was a very vulgar term for fecal matter. Understand what Paul's saying here. This is dung. You, you insert our contemporary language. Paul's writing this very shocking word to say, when any person tries to be made right with God through their own righteousness, their own works, he says it's dung. I count it as dung, refuse, garbage, because I have Jesus. His present is Christ. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, gained Christ, found in him righteousness through Jesus' works. You see, the gospel frees you from the slavery of trying to gain and maintain favor with God, and it frees you to enjoy him. That's what Paul's saying here. He's telling the Philippians that contrary to what they were hearing from the Judaizers, these Jewish false teachers, that righteousness comes as human beings are quote-unquote good. He says, no, true righteousness comes from Jesus and his perfect life, his work. It does not come in anything that we produce in ourselves. In fact, I think it's a play on, on words there. Paul's saying, what, what does the flesh produce? It produces dung. He's saying, you want to boast and have confidence in the flesh? What does the flesh produce every day? And he's saying, no, true righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. We can't earn God's favor. We can't maintain God's favor. We're sinners. The moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were instantly marked as an enemy of God. How many of us think of that when we look at the pregnancy test? Yay, I'm pregnant. Now I'm carrying an enemy of God in my womb. I need to start praying. The moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were an enemy of God because of sin. It came down to us from our first parents, from Adam. His sin is imputed to us. My two-week-old baby girl is an enemy of God that needs to grow up and repent. Yeah, she's brought into our family. She's brought into our covenant family. We're raising her and we'll raise her to know the Lord. But she must repent and trust in Christ. We're all born that way. Sin comes to us from Adam. Righteousness comes to us from Jesus Christ. It's called imputation. It's a big theological word for you. Go Google it. Christ gives you his righteousness. He imputes his righteousness to you. He takes your sin and gives you his righteousness when you repent and believe in him. That's why the gospel, it means good news. That's good news, isn't it? Jesus will take all of my sins and suffer on the cross and absorb all, the, all of the Father's wrath for me and he'll give me his perfect life so that I can be made right with God. Yeah, that's good news. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. He said, learn Christ in him crucified. Learn to sing to him and despairing of yourself. Say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness just as I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and have given me what is yours. You have taken upon yourself what you were not and have given to me what I was not. This is that mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours but Christ's, and the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. 
Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Understand this. Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. Christianity is understanding that God has to do something to you to make you right with him. He has to take your sin and give you his righteousness. See, in the past, Paul was trying to gain and maintain God's favor through his works. And he was trying to do it by being obedient to the Old Testament law, but he wasn't dealing with his heart. Now he knows it's all about Jesus' obedience for him. The law says that you can earn and maintain God's favor because of your works. The gospel says you earn and maintain God's favor through Jesus' works. Most of you would say, yeah, I believe is by grace through faith that I am saved. Most of you believe that you can't be made right with God through your works. But many of us live our lives as if we can maintain God's favor by what we do. So many of us will say, I can't do anything to be made right with God. That happens from Jesus. But then we get to a place where we think that we can maintain God's favor by the things that we do. Oh, he will love me if I read my Bible. He will love me if I pray. He will love me if I give financially to the church. He will love me if I serve. He will love me if I evangelize. And if I don't do that, he's going to frown upon me. When we do that, we get on the performance treadmill. See, we may not have people coming in here today saying you need to be circumcised to be made right with God and you need to obey the law in order to maintain that relationship, but we come up with our own ways of doing that, don't we? And we get on the performance treadmill when we do that. If you live with a vague sense of God's disapproval, any of you live with a vague sense that God isn't pleased with you, that he's always like, oh, Rick, come on. Again, if you live with that sense, you need to rehearse the gospel. You can't earn God's favor and you cannot maintain God's favor by what you do. If you feel like, how can I bring my needs before him? I've just failed him. I've just sinned. How can I come to him and ask him to help me now? If you think that, you need to rehearse the gospel. If you feel you deserve an answer to prayer because of your hard work and sacrifice, you need to rehearse the gospel. If you assume that you've sinned so many times that you've used up all your credit of forgiveness, you need to rehearse the gospel. If you feel more confident before God, if you've been faithful with your quiet times, your prayer, and your witnessing, you need to rehearse the gospel. It's not about what you do. If you can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in his eyes, anybody struggle seeing yourself as blameless in God's eyes? You need to rehearse the gospel. You cannot maintain favor with God, and you cannot earn it. It comes through Jesus Christ. If you fear that the day may not go as well as expected because you missed your quiet time, ever have one of those days? <gasps> Didn't read my Bible and pray. I'm going to probably get in a car wreck today and lose my job. <gasps> you don't understand God's grace. You need to rehearse the gospel. God doesn't come after you like an enemy if you forget to read his word one morning. Amen? None of us would be here if that's the case, right? Because we've all missed a day, right? You need to rehearse the gospel. If you assume that you can do something to make God love you more or less, you don't understand grace and you need to rehearse the gospel. You can't do anything, Christian. 
to make God love you more or to make God love you any less. That's the performance treadmill. Do you need to pray? Do you need to read your Bible? Do you need to fight sin? Yes, absolutely. Because when you neglect these spiritual disciplines, it doesn't change God's love for you, but it'll change your love for God. So you need to keep at it. You need to do those things. But the doing on your part of those things has to flow out of the doneness of Jesus, out of the fact that it is finished. And when you understand that you can't gain or maintain God's favor, it frees you to enjoy him. Because now you say, I don't have to read my Bible to make you love me and to earn your favor. Then you are free to say, I have your favor because of Jesus. Now I want to read my Bible. Now I want to spend time with you because you're not fickle like me. We withhold grace and love to other people because of the things that they don't do to us. But God is not that way. You begin to enjoy God when you understand that Jesus has given you access to him full time for eternity. The gospel frees you from the slavery to the performance treadmill. Frees you to live a life of knowing and enjoying God. You can spend your energy on that instead of your energy on trying to earn his favor. You see, for Paul here, what does all of this imputed righteousness, this justification, this right standing with God, this forgiveness, this being adopted into God's family, what does it produce in Paul? It produces a desire and a passion to know Jesus. He says, now I want to know him. If there's a God who will give me the righteousness of his son and not be fickle with me when I fail, oh my goodness, I want to know him. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The gospel frees you from trying to gain and maintain a relationship by your works and the things that you do. And it frees you to spend your energies knowing and enjoying God. Paul isn't merely interested in forgiveness of sins and right standing with God here. He loves the reality of those truths. He says, I've gained Christ. But he's not just interested in those truths. He wants to know the God who makes those truths true for him. He's not saying, what? I get forgiveness from God? I get right standing with God? Great, I'll see you, God, when I die. No, he says, I want to know you now. Who is this God that would credit me with the righteousness of his son and not be fickle in his dealings with me? I want to know him. Let me ask you today, what about you? Are you knowing and enjoying God or do you just love his forgiveness? I love his forgiveness, but I just don't want his forgiveness. I want him. I want to know him. Sinclair Ferguson said this, we must never offer the benefits of the gospel without the benefactor himself. We must never tell people about all the glorious, wonderful truths of the gospel without saying, this comes to you through a person, Jesus Christ These are a means to the end. Christ died to bring you to God, Peter says. Not Christ died to forgive you of your sins and walk away and never have anything to do with you. Christ died to bring you to God. And Paul says, I don't want all the benefits of the gospel. I don't want all of Christ's righteousness. And then I'll walk away. Now that I have that, now that I I realize I can't 
gain it or maintain his favor. Now I want to know who this God is. And he says, I want to know him. It's the Greek word, which means to know someone experientially, to know that you know that you know. And to know Jesus is to enjoy him. That's why I say the gospel sets you free to, to enjoy Jesus. I didn't say just know him. Because many people know many things about Jesus Christ, but to truly know Jesus is to enjoy him. Understand this, Grace. It is only when we know Jesus and exult and delight in, in his imputed righteousness that we will be in a position to experience his transforming, sanctifying resurrection power. It is only as we enjoy our justification before God that we will be empowered to endure suffering for Jesus. It's the power of Christ's resurrection. It's tied to knowing him. I think there's an equation here. Paul says, I want to know Jesus. And when I know Jesus and how wonderful he is, then I want to tell people. And when I tell people about Jesus, they don't want to hear the fact that they're sinners. They don't want to hear the fact that they can't do something to be made right with God. So then suffering comes into his life. And Paul says, to know Jesus is to suffer with him. And when you suffer because of the gospel message, it brings you right back to knowing Jesus. And then Paul says, when you know Jesus, you want to tell people about him. And when you tell people about Jesus, they don't want to hear it. And these Judaizers didn't want to hear it in Paul's day. So he was persecuted. And when he suffered for the gospel, he realized, now I'm truly knowing Jesus. And as he went another level deep in knowing and enjoying Jesus, he wanted to tell other people about him. And when he told that message to other people and they didn't want to hear it, he suffered. And as he suffered, he knew Jesus at a totally and complete different, deeper level. And as he knew Jesus at a different level, he said, I have to tell people about Jesus. And it went on and on. I think that's what Paul's saying here. What gave Paul the power to endure suffering for Jesus? What gave Paul the power to share in Christ's sufferings as he preached? It was the gospel. The fact that he was made right with God through Jesus. And he knew, you can take my life, but you can't take the life that I have in Jesus. Paul knew that to suffer for Jesus in the gospel and to share in his sufferings was the way to become like Jesus. And it didn't matter to Paul if he was martyred or died a natural death. That's why he says, by any means possible that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I don't care how I die. If I die a martyr's death, or if I'm riding a camel and fall off and it crushes me and I die. He says, I don't care. But I just want resurrection because resurrection means being in God's presence forever. Being with his treasure, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's why it wasn't a burden for Paul to preach it to the Philippians. That's why it's not a burden for me to preach it here every week. It's not a burden for me to say gospel 400 times in a sermon. It's not a burden for me to keep using phrases like rehearse the gospel, review the gospel, preach the gospel to yourself. Why? Because when you meditate on the gospel... You see the loveliness of Christ. You see the deep, deep love of God. You see the transforming power of his spirit. And you see the depth and the ugliness of your sin. And you see Jesus. When you think on the cross, you can't help but see Jesus Christ as the greatest treasure in this world. And you can't help but see everything else as loss, rubbish, dung, excrement, scraps, trash, things to be thrown out. So let me ask you now, are you a Christian? Have you repented? 
Do you trust in Christ? And is he your greatest treasure? Do you delight in him more than anything? Can you say knowing him makes everything else lost, everything else is dung? Can you say that today? If you can't, then you need to repent because some of you are not Christians. You don't have favor with God. You are his enemy. You need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to trust in Jesus. He loves you, but you can't earn his favor by what you do. Christ gives that to you. He loves you. Repent today. Be made right with God and escape the eternity of hell. And know for sure that you'll be resurrected one day and be with him forever. If you're a Christian here today, a believer, I just want to say, rest. To the unbeliever, I say, repent. To the Christian, I just say, rest. You have favor with God because of Jesus. You can't earn it and you can't maintain it. Jesus has done that for you. Rest in him, know him, suffer for him, and enjoy him today. The gospel frees you from the slavery of trying to gain and maintain favor with God, and it frees you to enjoy him. Isn't he good to us? You can enjoy him today. Let's take a moment and pray and prepare our hearts to sing again. Jesus did it all for us. He truly did. He did it all. We can't do anything. The only thing we bring into the equation is our sin. Jesus did it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son, for his perfect life, which comes to us sinners who have rebelled against you from the moment of conception. And then we gave proof of that, God, as we grew up and we complained and grumbled and we lusted and we worried and we fought and we spoke bad words and had bad thoughts and bad motives. God, at our core, we were wrecked because of sin. And at his core, Jesus Christ was perfect and righteous, your son. And we thank you, God, that in the gospel message, you give us your son's righteousness that makes us right with you. And he takes our sin. And thank you, Father, that for the believer, we don't have to try to earn your favor, God, but we have it because of Jesus. Would you begin to help us as a church body understand this freedom and that then we would want to know you and want to enjoy you more. Would you do it for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.